Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. It's going to be our text for today there in verses 17 through 24. Uh, I'm going to read this whole passage. I'll explain in a minute that we're just going to look at the first part of this passage today. But to take it in its context, I want to read um, all of verses 17 through 24. title of our message is Walking in New Life. Walking in New Life. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. This is the Word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Please give us teachable spirits today so that we pay close attention to your word. Give us a a hunger and a thirsting for the life that comes from your word. And Father, thank you so much for the gospel that your word proclaims to us, the good news that we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, if you go all the way to the end, in the next to the last chapter of the Bible, we see John's vision of what is called a new heaven and a new earth. And in that vision of the new heaven and new earth, we hear God say these words, Behold, I am making all things new. So Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 21 verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Church, the, the, the Bible is God's story of his creation and his recreation. It's God's story of creating life and then creating new life, making that life new. And the reason there needed to be a recreation, the reason there needed to be a creation of new life in the place of old life is because that first life became broken. God's creation became broken. Now, this is important to, re- to, to, to remember this and to know this. God's creation didn't become broken because God messed up. See, the very last verse of the first chapter of the Bible says that And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so if God didn't mess it up, the question then is, who did? Humans. The first humans, and then we continue in their line of messing up God's good creation. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the woman God had made was deceived by the serpent. The serpent, God's enemy and our enemy, twisted God's word. He lied to the woman, and the woman believed the serpent. 
She rejected the truth of God's word for the lie of God's enemy. And then her husband, who the text tells us was right there with her, followed in her steps. But in the midst of their rebellion, there was good news because God promised to send a deliverer who would destroy that serpent. It was a promise to restore what had been lost through their faith. It was a promise to give life to people who deserved death. And the rest of the Bible, in between that beginning and the end, describes how God made good on that promise. He sent His Son to the earth to live the perfect life that we can never live, to die the death that we deserve to die, and then to rise from the dead so that all who believe in Him could have a new life, could live forever. In other words, God sent Jesus to make all things new. That's the story of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Humans messed it up. God sent His Son to make all things new through his death and resurrection. And then we get to the end. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And God says, behold, I am making all things new. For God is able to take what has been destroyed through sin and make it new through Jesus. The sovereign God of creation is moving his creation right now to a new beginning, to a new heaven and new earth where all is made new. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we're not careful... If we don't pay very close attention to God's word, we might be tempted to think that God making all things new, God even making us new, is something that will only happen one day in the new heaven and the new earth. Friend, the truth of God's word is that God is transforming the old into the new right now. Praise the Lord. The story of the Bible is not merely as good as this is. Please don't hear me diminishing this good truth. But it's not merely that one day in the future God will make new what has been corrupted by sin. The story of the Bible is that God is making old things new right now as He rescues sinners from their sin and gives them new life in Christ. A new life that makes their lives, that makes your life, that makes my life new. Not just one day in the future, but new right now. And we who have believed in Jesus are those sinners whom God is making new. Church, although we are waiting to see the new life that the next life will bring in the new heaven and the new earth, we are not waiting to see the change that God's work of salvation brings because new life means a changed life in this life, not just in the next. And that's the point of this passage we are studying today and really next Sunday and really, in a way, the rest of Ephesians. Uh, but we're going to use this as our main idea statement for verses 17 through 24. So this will be our main idea for this week and, Lord willing, uh, next week. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 teaches us this church that new life in Christ means a changed life in this life. New life in Christ means a changed life in this life. What I mean by that is, is in this life here, not just in the next when we get to heaven. Paul's already mentioned this truth in this letter. Remember chapters 1 through 3 were all about God's work of salvation. But even though the focus in chapters 1 through 3 was on God's work of salvation, what he has done for us, even there, Paul couldn't help but go ahead and, and get to some of the practical application to make the connection between God's gift of salvation and the transformed life it produces in us right now. For instance, think back to chapter 1 verse 4 where Paul said that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. For what, what reason? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Think, think back to chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul said that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But just in case someone wanted to say, well, you know, of course we will be holy and blameless. Of course we'll live lives full of good works in heaven. 
But surely God doesn't expect that of us right now. Just in case someone was tempted to say that, God inspired Paul not to stop at the end of chapter 3, but to write chapters 4 through 6. At the beginning of chapter 4, remember this verse that we looked at several weeks ago. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, in light of the amazing, incredible work of salvation, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, we are to display in our day-to-day living the work of salvation God has done in us and saving us from our sin. And remember, the first way of living according to the calling to which we have been called, living according to the salvation that we have been given and that has changed our lives that Paul mentioned, was walking in unity. And we talked about that in the first part of chapter 4. And that walking in unity in the body of Christ kind of led Paul on this little excursion, if you will, into the body of Christ and what life looks like in the body of Christ. And that's what we've looked at for the past few weeks since we've gone through through chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 16. But now he picks back up with the word walk after he's finished this little dive into the body of Christ. And he calls us to walk in, to live out in our day-to-day lives the new life we have been given, which is a life freed from the power of sin. And and church, the way that Paul writes this passage leaves no room for thinking that this new way of living is somehow reserved for the new heaven and new earth. He writes it in such a way there's no denying that this new life changes how we live right now. We are to live transformed lives right now in the midst of a world that is broken by sin. Now, there's two main parts to chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. And so, two main truths. And like I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to look at part 1 today, and then, Lord willing, part 2 next week. In verses 17 through 19, Paul tells us how we're not to walk. And as he does, he gives a helpful explanation of what it looks like to walk according to the way of the world. And then in verses 20 through 24, Paul reminds us of the transformation that Christ has brought into our lives, which then leads to a changed life right here and right now. And so we're going to focus on part one today. That's verses 17 through 19. And then, Lord willing, next week, verse 20 through 24. So main truth for this passage, number one today. Main truth we'll get to next week, number two. All under this banner truth that new life in Christ means a changed life in this life. So here we go. You ready? Verses 17 through 19. Church, worldly walking should be in our past even though it is present all around us. Worldly walking should be in our past, even though it is present all around us. Verse 17, Paul tells us how we are not to walk. Look at verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Or literally in the original language, as the Gentiles are walking. That word walking gets repeated. This I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles are walking. I think Paul is saying two basic things here. He's saying that we shouldn't walk as we once walked, thus worldly walking should be in our past. And he's saying that we shouldn't walk as the world around us is currently walking, thus worldly walking should be in our past, even though it is present all around us. Let me explain from the text. Notice that word Gentiles there. Gentiles. Remember, the Gentiles are all the nations other than the Jews. Paul's writing this letter to Gentiles, Gentile believers in Christ in Ephesus. But here he uses the word Gentiles not to refer to their ethnic identity, their ethnicity, but to the manner of living which characterized the unsaved Gentiles. We could call it worldliness. The Gentiles he's writing to are still Gentiles by birth, right? Their their trusting in Christ hasn't changed their, their ethnicity. But they're now children of God by their rebirth. 
by the salvation God has blessed them with, and that changes how they live. Notice Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles are walking. In other words, don't walk how you used to walk. Don't live in the sin in which you once lived, which God has saved you from. Church, in Christ, we have a new identity. And so we are not to live out our old identity in the, any longer. We'll just skip ahead to that second part that we'll get to next week in more detail. For just a second, notice that Paul's going to call this new identity the new man or the new self. We've been given a new self to replace the old self. And therefore, we are not to live the way we once lived. It is the new which is to characterize our living, not the old. Yet even though we've been freed from the power of sin, I think you would agree with me, the temptation to sin is very much alive and present in our lives. It comes from within us. We're freed from the power of sin, but the presence of sin is still lurking. And all we got to do is just look right inside of us to see it. And Paul said it this way to the Galatians. Galatians 5.17. He said, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that lives in us. He said, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he, he, he said it this way in his letter to Christians. James chapter 1, verse 14, he said, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 of James, he said, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Brothers and sisters, we are in a battle every single day when it comes to walking according to the calling to which we have been called. Some of the battle stems from our own desires, our own passions. By God's Spirit in us, by the power of the gospel, church, please be encouraged by this. We can say no to those passions that still, those sinful passions that still reside within us. We can say no to those things. We don't have to keep walking in the way we once walked. We can refuse to walk as we once walked. We can put worldly walking in our past where it should be because Jesus nailed that past, that sin, to the cross. And there's a second part of this. You see, Paul not only says that we're no longer walk, which implies in the way we once walked, he goes on to say, as the Gentiles are walking. As the Gentiles are walking. In other words, as Christians, we got it coming at us from both angles, right? We got the temptations that come from within us, but we also got the temptations to live like the world around us. But we're not to live the way we once lived, and we're not to live the, how the unsaved world around us lived. And that makes, that makes living for Jesus pretty hard. As, as I have opportunities to, to share the gospel with people and, 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 and kind of be a part of them coming to place their faith and trust in Christ and, and, um, and then meeting with people who have trusted in Christ and they're very new believers, uh, one of the things I, I, I say is, hey, life following Jesus is not always easy. It's hard because we're to live a new life, but, but we got temptations coming from within us and coming from without us. The Gentiles are unsaved. They're still walking in sin. Now, I want you to think very, very just practically about these people that he's writing to. Where do these Gentiles, who are believers in Christ, where do they live? Have they all escaped to some little monastery or convent where they just kind of huddled up in this little holy Christian huddle? Not that that will protect them from sin because we've already seen that it, sin still kind of creeps up within us. But no, they're, they're still living right in the middle of the Gentile world that they used to be a part of, that they used to live like. 
those people around them. They're living in Ephesus. They're living day-to-day life in the middle of the unsaved Gentiles who are not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, who are still walking in their sin. These Ephesian believers are right in the middle of the sin that surrounds them. I mean, these Gentile sinners that he says don't walk like them, these are the believers, the Christians' neighbors. They're their co-workers. They're their classmates. They're living in the midst of them. But they're not to live as sinners in the midst of sinners, but now they're to live as saints in the midst of sinners because they've been transformed by the gospel. The same is true for you, Christian. The same is true for me as a follower of Jesus. We've been saved from our sin. The gospel calls us to live differently from the world in which we are living. Brothers and sisters, let's be, let's be just honest with ourselves today. The temptations are real to not live in the way that brings honor and glory to God. They come from inside of us, and they come from outside of us, but we are to resist. We are to no longer walk as the world is walking. And here's the good news of the gospel. God has provided everything that we need to say no to worldly walking. He has transformed our hearts, and then he's with us. He gives us his Holy Spirit so that there's no excuse to walk in the way that we once walked. God has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, sealed us. He's filled us with the power of Christ, with the presence of His Holy Spirit. And then if we were to skip ahead to the end of this letter, at the end of chapter 6, that last main section in chapter 6, we see that this, this, this gospel is to characterize our walking. It is the very armor of God. It is ours to put on so that we can, what Paul says at the end of chapter 6, that we can stand against the schemes of the devil so that we can withstand in the evil day so that we can no longer walk as the Gentiles are walking. Not so that we'll run away from the world, but so that we'll run away from sin as we live in this world. Worldly walking should be in our past even though it is present all around us. Now Paul could have stopped there with verse 17 and what we've just looked at, but he didn't. The rest of verse 17 and verse 19, he explains in more detail this worldly walking which characterizes the unsaved people around them. This worldly walking which they are to avoid. And I think, church, if we'll pay close attention to this description that he gives of worldly walking, I think it'll do a few things for us. I think, one, it'll serve to remind us of all that God has saved us from. It will lead to thanksgiving in our hearts and lives. This is not how we are anymore. It's how we once were, but it's not how we are anymore. And it will grow our love for God. It will grow our hatred towards sin. And it will grow us in our gospel-driven motivation to say no to that old way of living. Look at the end of verse 17. Paul says the world is walking in the futility of their minds. The world is walking in the futility of their minds. What does that mean? Well, the word futile means pointless, meaningless, in vain. The way they think, the way the world thinks is pointless, futile, in vain. It means their choices which their futile mind leads to them to are worthless as well. And they're walking in worthlessness. Church, God created us to worship Him. But when we trade in worship of God for rejection of God, it leads to a futile or pointless life where we fill our lives with ways of thinking and living which end up leaving us empty and destroyed. Paul breaks down this worldly walking, this meaningless way of living into two categories. I'm going to call this our internal processing and our external behavior. Okay, Internal processing and external behavior. And they're connected because our external behavior flows from our internal processing. And sin destroys both. First notice our internal processing in verses 18 through the beginning of verse 19. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. This is describing the internal processing of the unsaved, of the unregenerate, of those who are still walking in the ways of the world. Which means for the saved, this doesn't describe us anymore. God has transformed. He has changed our internal processing. Church, God has changed our internal processing. Praise the Lord. We should celebrate that truth. That what happens inside of us is not how it once was. And that means three things. God has changed our internal processing. That means three things according to this verse. I'm going to kind of say them real fast and then we'll walk through them, okay? It changes, it changes our thinking. No more darkness in our thinking. It changes our heart. No more death from our heart. And it changes our attitude towards sin. No more desensitization towards sin. We'll talk about those things. Those are the three descriptions of how our internal processing has been transformed. And so he gives a description of this. This is the way the world works. But remember, we're not part of the world anymore. We don't belong to the world. We live in it, but we're not of it. And so we don't live this way anymore. So here we go. Think about it this way. Christian, there should be no more darkness in our thinking. No more darkness in our thinking. Because God has changed our internal processing. There's no more darkness in our thinking. That is good news. That's the power of the gospel in us. That we don't have to think in darkness anymore. Paul says in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. Do you know that sin pollutes your mind? It's like a storm cloud rolling in that just clouds out everything else. What happens when, you, when, when things become dark? What do you do? You, you walk around, you stumble around, you fall into danger. Sin clouds out godly thinking. When God first created humans, He created them with, with this ability to know and understand everything they needed to know and understand about God, to know and understand everything they needed to know about, about themselves and the world that God had made so they could live for the glory of God each and every moment of each and every day. But sin clouds out that godly thinking and causes us to be unable to reason well so that we misinterpret our lives. We think we're in charge. We think that we make good kings and queens of our own lives. We think our way is best. And like Adam and Eve, we think sin will make our lives better. That is the way of thinking which is clouded by darkness. And it leads to destruction. It leads to futile, purposeless wondering. But praise God, the gospel changes our internal processing, which means for us believers, no more darkness in our thinking. But secondly, worldly walking is characterized by death from our heart. And so Christian, no more death from our heart. Because God has transformed our internal processing. Therefore, no more death from our heart. No more death from our heart. Paul says alienated. The next description of this life of, of walking in a manner worthy of the world instead of worthy of the calling of God is that we're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The way we once walked, the way the world around us is walking is the way of death. And it is death that comes from deep within us due to their hardness of heart. They're alienated from the life of God. Friends, death is the consequence of sin because sin is rebellion against God and God is the author of life. And so when we reject God, we are rejecting life. And the reality 
The bad news of humanity is that sin runs deep inside of us. Friends, we are sinners by our very nature, as Paul has already described for us in in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We are sinners by our very nature. Our problem is not merely that we do sinful things, but that we are sinners at the very depths of who we are. And that's why we need Jesus. Because we can't change that. We might be able to change some behaviors in our life, replace some bad habits with some good habits on our own willpower, but we cannot change our hearts. We don't just need a behavioral modification plan. We need a heart transplantation plan. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. He's given us new hearts that are no longer hardened by sin. And so that means for us as Christians, we ought not to live as though our hearts are still hardened by sin. Let me pause for a moment and extend an invitation to you to trust in Jesus. If you're convicted of your sin, you know your heart today has been hardened by sin. But today, God is calling you to turn from that sin and to be made new, to receive salvation through Christ. Then receive it. You receive it by faith, not by trying to be a better person. Remember, it's it's a heart, a new heart that we need. You can't give yourself that. But God is willing to give us that through Jesus. Jesus died for our sin and He rose from the dead so that everyone who would turn from sin and say, I don't want to live that way anymore, but I I can't stop it on my own. God, I believe in Jesus to save me from my sin. The Bible says that person will be saved. So if your heart is hard with sin today, let God give you a new heart. Let Him give you new life. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. I think it's also helpful as we think about this description of worldly walking as being alienated from the life of God. As we face the temptation to live like the world around us, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's easy. Have you ever been here where it's easy to look at the way the world around us is walking and almost envy them? Like to say, wow, they look like they're having so much fun. I mean, they're just living a life to the fullest. Friends, this, this verse is a reminder that the way of sin is not the way of life. It may look like life, but it's death. It might be wrapped up in wrapping paper that looks like life, but you open it up on the inside, and all it is is death. So this is a good reminder that we don't want to go back to that way of living. And when we're tempted to think, oh man, that, 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 that looks so fun. I just want to go do what the world is doing. It's the way of death. But praise God, the gospel changes our internal process, which means no more death from our heart. And then, and then notice here a, a third characterization of our internal processing before Jesus. Okay, so remember, he's describing the way of the world. And so... How are we processing things inside of us? We're darkening our understanding. There's death coming from our heart. And then third, we're desensitized towards sin. We're desensitized toward toward sin. And so church, because God has changed our internal processing for Christians, no more desensitization toward our sin. Verse 19 begins this way. They have become callous. They have become callous. What does that mean? Those who are walking in the way of the world have lost all feeling towards sin. They become desensitized towards sin. Sin no longer feels bad. I remember when I was first learning to play the guitar, one of the hardest things was the pain. You say the pain, yeah. And I don't just mean like emotional pain, like, oh, I'm never going to learn how to do this. I mean actual physical pain. You say playing the guitar causes physical pain. Those of you who 
play the guitar or maybe another kind of stringed instrument know the pain that playing that kind of instrument causes. Because when you press those strings into the neck of the guitar, those metal strings press into your fingers. And my tender little fingers hurt like crazy. I mean, it was so painful, I almost gave up. I'd almost be in tears because I could feel the pain. But I, I really wanted to learn how to prep play. And by the encouragement of others, I kept going, I kept going, and I kept going. And guess what? Now it doesn't hurt anymore. Why? Because the strings all of a sudden became soft? No, because my fingers became hard. Now on the ends of my fingers, you know, you, you have these on your hands or your toes or feet. You got calluses, right? There's, this, this is just dead skin on the end of my fingers. I, when I play now, I, don't, I can't feel the pain anymore. Now, that's a good thing. Calluses are great things for playing the guitar. But a calloused heart, a calloused mind, a calloused internal processor is terrible when it comes to sin. The world living in their darkened thinking and darkened heart, uh, hardened hearts are callous towards sin. Sin is no longer cringeworthy. So much so that, that the world around us not only tolerates sin, but very often celebrates sin. And we were once in the same boat as well, but church, because of Jesus, not anymore. God has saved us. He's made us new. And in this new life, sin now becomes cringeworthy in our lives once more. As a Christian, I should be repelled by sin. Like a, it's summertime still, like a bug repellent repels bugs, right? Pushes it away. I ought to be repelled by sin, right? One smell of it, and I should be running the other direction. As a Christian, I should feel the pain of sin when I give way to temptation. When I sin, I shouldn't ignore it. I shouldn't excuse it. But I should be broken over that sin because it's not cutting into callous. It's cutting into, it's cutting into soft flesh. Flesh that has been softened up. Heart that's been softened up. A mind that's been enlightened by the power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the world around us is trying hard to desensitize us towards sin. And Satan, our enemy, is behind the world's efforts to desensitize us toward sin. And the results of this desensitization, if we, if we allow it to creep in, is that we let sin slide into us as we let the world influence us. And then what happens? We let sin slide out of us because our internal processor results in external behavior. And praise God, He's made us new. Through the blood of Jesus, He's removed the callousness from our hearts and minds so we can see sin for what it is and not fall prey to it any longer. And it also, by one more point of application, ought to give us compassion for the world around us that is walking in this way. So that we want to share the good news of Christ for them so that God can soften their hearts. So that they can feel the sting of sin and feeling the sting of sin, they can run to the Savior who can rescue them from that sin. Internal processor, God has changed. But He's also then changed our external behavior. As how we live matters. God transforms our external behavior. And so just notice this last couple things right here as we end this passage. You, you see what happens in our minds eventually works its way out into our actions and choices and behavior. As we examine the text, we see that just like Paul gave descriptions of the internal processor, he gives descriptions of the external behavior of the ways of the world. But just like with those descriptions of the internal processor, right, they're not true of Christians anymore. The external behavior descriptions are not true of us anymore. Praise the Lord. So just notice two things here. Christian, no more doing whatever feels good. 
Because God has transformed our external behavior, no more doing whatever feels good. Look at verse 19. And have given themselves up to sensuality. What does that mean? That giving themselves up means just a complete abandonment, no more self-control, to sensuality. Uh, Another way to say that is to do whatever feels good to us. Whatever feels good in the moment, right? To throw caution to the wind and run headlong into whatever feels good in the moment. Does sexual arousal with someone other than my spouse feel good in the moment? The world says, go for it. Does retaliating in unrighteous anger feel good in the moment? The world says, fire away. Does gossip feel good in the moment? The world says, blabber away with all you've got. Does holding a grudge feel good in the moment? The way of the world says, don't think twice about giving that cold shoulder to that person. And the list could go on and on. Church, that's the way the world behaves. That's the way we used to behave before God got a hold of us and transformed us. But Christian, no more doing whatever feels good in the moment. Even as we get into next week, just a little, a little hint to where we're going, we're going to see the word truth pop up several times. What happens is that God replaces that letting whatever feels good in the moment, He replaces that with truth of God, the truth of Jesus driving us instead of our feelings. We'll save that for next week. And then this final thing, church, no more greediness for impurity. As we think about God transforming our external behavior, no more greediness for impurity. God has changed our external behavior. So no more greediness for impurity. Look at the end of verse 19. This last description of the way of the world, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When we are darkened in our understanding, when we are alienated from the life of God, when we're callous towards sin, all we know to long for is sin. Our clouded judgment creates an appetite for a greediness for sin. We start thinking that impurity, uncleanness, sinfulness is the only thing worth living for. And here's the thing, the more we sin... We find ourselves greedy for more sin because we're giving ourselves over to something that can never satisfy us. Sin, impurity, cannot satisfy our deepest longings because we were created. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We were created to be satisfied only in the worship of our Creator. But praise God, He's not left us to ourselves. He's not left us with this gnawing appetite for impurity that only leads us to wanting more. God has provided for us, church, the only thing that will satisfy us forever, which then transforms our behavior he has provided for us Himself. And He has provided for us, for us Himself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He sent His Son, Jesus, to transform us so that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness instead of impurity. He sent Jesus to transform us so that we would be controlled by truth rather than being controlled by whatever feels good in the moment. If you were to look ahead for just a minute to the rest of that passage that we read earlier, Paul says, but that, that way of the world is not the way that you learn Christ because God has made you new. We'll look in more detail at those wonderful verses next week, but now simply notice that it is Christ that makes the difference. But that is not the way you learn Christ as the truth is in Jesus Church, we no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We no longer walk the way that the world walks around us, the way we used to walk because of Jesus. He came and died to make us new, and He did that so that we would live new lives right now. New life in Christ means a changed life in this life. As we close, let's examine our hearts. Let's be real. It's not easy. 
I'm not even going to say tomorrow. Today. Maybe in the next hour. Maybe in the next five minutes. Maybe even right now. There are temptations in your heart, in my heart, around us to look like the ways of the world. Sometimes we think back to our former way of living and we think, man, it sure was easier when I have to worry about what God thought about what I was doing. Back when I could just do whatever felt good in the moment, man, it's so hard to change my old habits and my old ways of living. It's easy to think that way. Sometimes it's easy to look at those around us and say, man, it sure would be easier just to do what everybody else is doing. Many of our students are going to face that temptation as they go back to school this week. Many of you are going to face that temptation at work this week in your interactions with others. Sure would be, they just seem like they're enjoying life. It's so hard to go against the flow. Church, please be reminded of this passage in those moments. Be reminded of the reality of that way of thinking and living. It is the way of darkness. It is the way of death. It is the way of desensitization and resulting in rebellion against the Creator. Meaningless minds enslaved to the meaningless pursuit of that which only feels good for the moment but never satisfies us in the end. Church, Jesus has rescued us from that. So don't go back. Let's not go back. He's rescued us from it. New life in Christ means we resist going Going back to the ways of the world. We resist going back to that old way of life. We resist going back to the way that the people around us are living. So students, Christian students, as you head to school this week, don't walk like your classmates who don't know Jesus. Adults, maybe you go into your workplace, go to your families, don't walk like those who don't know Jesus Church, as we head out into whatever God calls us to, wherever He calls us to this week, let's not walk like those who have not been transformed like Jesus. The Gospel is too powerful. The new life we've been given is too good. And Jesus is too worthy to go back. Church, worldly walking should be in our past even though it is present all around us because of Jesus. God said, behold, I'm making all things new. Is the way that you're living your life, Christian, giving evidence that God is a God who is making all things new? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is truth, that is life, that is needful in our lives. Father, in the stillness of this moment, help us to examine our hearts. Father, if someone is dead in their sin, a hard heart, has never been saved, Lord, I pray that right now they would ask you to save them through the blood of Jesus. Father, those of us who have trusted in Christ, Father, if we've been convicted by your word and your spirit today, maybe some area of our life where we are walking as we once walked, where we're walking in the way that the world, the unsaved world around us is walking. Father, help us to run to You. To ask for forgiveness. And by Your grace and by Your power, don't go back to that sin anymore. And then Father, give us compassion for the world around us that is living in the way that... Paul just described for us in this passage. Father, we don't just want to live in a way that brings you honor and glory for our own sake, but Father, for the sake of those around us so that we will be shining lights of hope in a dark world. 
Father, we worship you. Lord, as we sing this final song today, may you flood our hearts and minds with the truth of this passage, that you are making things new, that you have made us new. And Father, that is to be the driving force of our lives and how we think and what we say and what we do. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.